Good morning, everyone. Um, we just wanted to play that video to recognize Memorial Day since it's coming up tomorrow. Um, and also just to remember the reason why we can meet as a church is because men and women were willing to die for this country, a lot of them being Christians, so that we could meet freely without you know, any interruption or restriction. And so if you know someone that maybe you know, has lost a loved one in war, maybe pray for them this week. Or if you know someone, maybe take them out to lunch or something like that. But yeah, we don't want to linger on that for too long. So uh, if you're new, we'd love for you to text uh, welcome to the number on the screen here, 406-219-0314, so that we can spam you guys so many emails. But no, we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to have a fake community here. You know, we don't want to just spam you emails, but we want to invite you into the community here at the church, and that's just one way we can connect with you guys. Uh, also, we have another announcement here. Um, after service today at 12 o'clock, we're going to be having a volunteer meeting for uh, Mega Sports Camp. So if you signed up for that, make sure you don't miss that meeting. They believe they had some food that you had to RSVP for or whatever. But yeah, so come check that out. That would be great. Otherwise, uh, I am JD. I'm the youth pastor here at the church. If you did not know that and you thought I was just a weird dude who hanged out with teenagers every Sunday, that's why I am here. Uh, I do work here. But this is technically my second time actually speaking on the stage here. The first time was during my job interview, and I wasn't supposed to teach at all because uh, Adam was out of town, and then John randomly got vertigo, so they texted me an hour before service and said, can you come and preach for us? And I was like, uh, sure. I don't even work here, but it sounds good. And I guess it worked out because they hired me, so here I am. So uh, we're going to be jumping into the next two whole verses in James. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're doing, we're doing a quick break. We're going into actually Gideon. So they asked me, uh, what do you want to teach on? And I was like, you know, I, I love talking about Gideon. We're going to be in Gideon chapter 6. And if you, yeah, I assume a lot of you probably know about Gideon, but I always like going back to him because there's always something to learn from Gideon. Wherever place in life that you're at, you can always go into Gideon. There's something that I feel like God, at least for me, has always wanted to tell me or something he needed to point out in my life. Either some weakness or some area in my life that I needed to grow in. So we're going to be jumping in there. We're going to start right in Judges 6, verse 1, which says... The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So if you don't know, the Israelites had this bad habit at this time in Judges where they would start acting like the countries around them or getting involved in the cultures of people around them, starting worshiping like pagan gods, started sinning and all this, and God would send another nation or one of these cultures they were copying to come invade them or occupy them or whatever to point them back to Christ and to have them walk away from this sinful life they've started to take part in. And so the Midianites were kind of the, you know, the country of the week for this. And if you don't know, the Midianites lived in an area of Arabia, like the Arabian Desert. So they didn't have a ton of resources or a ton of goods. So they kind of operated like pirates or like Vikings. So they would come into Israel, take whatever they needed, and then just leave. And so this left the Israelites in a state of fear because it wasn't just like, okay, they came and occupied established cities. It was, they could come in at any point, kill people, take their crops, take whatever they wanted, and then go back. But they were never sure when they were going to come. So this left the Israelites in hiding, so they would spend time in like caves or build cities in places where it would be harder for the Midianites to get to, and that sort of thing. And so that's where we find Gideon. Uh, so in verse 11 here, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So at first, that doesn't sound like too weird. Okay, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. 
But what's odd about that is a wine press is typically in a cave or in like a pit. But a, a, where you would thresh wheat would be on a threshing floor. So normally they would have like a clay ground either outside in a field or up on a hill. Because when they would thresh wheat, they would beat it against the ground. It would knock off all the grain, but leave behind like the chaff and plants like that. And so they needed the wind to be able to blow through and knock off all the chaff and the stem and all that and leave behind the grain. So they could just pick it up later and not have to do a ton of work. But so Gideon is very specifically hiding in his wine press in a pit or a cave where the wind can't blow. So he's intentionally making things harder for himself so that he can hide from the Midianites so they won't see him. Right. So that's where we find Gideon. And it also leads me to our bottom line for today that I wanted to just to focus on from the very beginning, which is God wants you to leave your wine press, right? There's times in our lives where we have this fear or this lack of will to follow God, so we stay in this wine press. And at some point, God is going to ask you, it's time for you to leave the wine press. It's time for you to leave hiding and do what God has called you to do, right? So we're going to jump into the next verse here, verse 12 to 13. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Were all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And so I kind of love this exchange because you don't really find out till later that Gideon doesn't realize this is an angel. And so when he goes to the angel and says, oh, my Lord, it's, it can kinda, it's actually coming off a bit of his sarcasm. So it's more like, oh, my, my liege, oh, because Gideon's hiding, right? He doesn't want people to come find him. And some random dude he's never met, it just comes up to him. He's like, oh, you're a mighty warrior of God. Like, he probably thinks he's kind of messing with him or trying to pull something or something like that, right? But then we also see Gideon starts complaining, right? He complains to this guy who's like, oh, if you're from God, like, where is the God who brought us out of Egypt, right? Where is the God who sends people to save us, that fixes our problems? Where is God now? Like, why is he letting this happen to us, right? And so we see the angel's response to this in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And so Gideon's been, he kind of complains to this angel a little bit. He's upset that God hasn't sent somebody, right? And then the angel looks at him and goes, yeah, yeah, buckaroo, it's you. Why do you think I'm here, you know? He's like telling him like, you're the guy, right? God is sending you. You're the guy God is sending, right? And so I like to think God has a sense of irony. He knew that that's how Gideon was going to respond. But let's see how Gideon responds to being told he's the guy, right? So verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And so we see again the whole like, oh, my leash, oh, I, oh Lord, right? But he says, I'm the weakest, right? I'm not strong. I'm not some big, powerful guy, right? Like, I shouldn't be the one that God is calling to do this thing. And I, I love this because he's like, he's complaining, right? He's complaining that God is not sending someone, but then as soon as God asks him to be the one that he's going to send, right? He's like, okay, you, I'm, you want me to send somebody? Guess what? It's you, right? But as soon as God tells him to do that, he's like, it's not me. It obviously is not me. It can't be me. I'm too busy. I'm threshing wheat. I'm hiding in a wine press, right? Like, it shouldn't be me. And it reminds me of this story. Uh, 
I knew this pastor down in San Diego, and he had this friend who, he lived up north, and this friend always had something to complain about, right? He always had something or some problem that he had with the church. He, he's like, are oh, the theology's wrong? They're doing this thing the wrong way. Oh, they keep trying to build coffee shops. Like, the church is all messed up, right? And so one day he tells him, okay, like, it seems like God has given you a great passion for the church in America. How about you come down to my church? You can do a little bit of consulting and tell us where we're doing things wrong, right? Like, how can we improve, you know? And the guy, when he offered this to him, was like, oh, I, I can't do that. There's no way I could do that. I, I'd have to take like a weekend off or something. Like, it's just not, I, I can't do that. But it, it's so funny because this guy is complaining that so there's something wrong with the church. But as soon as he's offered to be the church, to actually try to fix something, he refuses, right? And I think for a lot of us, that can be us, right? You know, we, we have this, you know, this desire um, to like complain and, or like to worry about things and ask God to come fix our problems for us, right? But then we look at it and we're like, I'm not going to do a single thing about that. You know, in reality, you're not going to do a single thing. You're just hoping if you complain enough, someone else will do something about it, right? And I'm not just saying that to be like, oh, that's you guys. Like, I definitely do the same thing. I definitely complain and ask God to fix problems. Like, I always complain and ask God, like, why aren't you sending someone to fix our government, you know, or something like that. And like, maybe I'll, I'll vote and that's the only thing I'll do about it. But really, I just want God to send someone to fix the problem, right? I want God to be the one to send someone else to do it instead of me. And I think that's a tendency for a lot of us. We want God to come in and fix all our problems. And, you know, sometimes that's how God works, but it's not always how he works, right? Sometimes he chooses to send other people. But we have this desire within us sometimes where we want to preserve our own comforts, right? We want to live a life that isn't uncomfortable. We want God to fix things for us, right, or whatever, and we get to this point where we're like, oh, I actually have to give money to this, or, oh, I have to give up a weekend to like, serve the Lord, or if I do this, I'm going to be that weird guy. I'm going to be that guy, and it's just going to make relationships awkward, or something like that. And so it's easy for us to reject serving God because it inconveniences us. All right. But that's not what God's asking from, or from us, right? He's asking for our whole lives, right? He's not asking you just to, to give up a weekend or a couple hours, you know, Jesus says you're supposed to pick up your cross and follow him, that it's not going to be something that's easy, right? He wants people that he, he, he's like, I need someone to go to Papua New Guinea and spread the gospel. You're already like, I'm on my way. I'm on it, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Again, when I was in high school, uh, there was this kid, uh, I, was, I was at a, a summer camp, right? Christian summer camp. We just came out of a message. And there was this kid uh, crying in the middle of a field. And there was a part of me that was like, I felt bad, and I felt like God was saying, go over and ask that guy how he's doing. Just go talk to him, see how he's doing. I was like, okay. And I, in my head, though, I was like, no, maybe he wants to be alone. Like, maybe he doesn't want people to come bother him. You know, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to leave my wine press, right? I don't want to do something that's kind of uncomfortable or whatever. And so I kind of ignored it. And then after a little while, I realized he was gone. Like, he had left, he'd gone somewhere else. And I felt this sense of relief, because I was like, okay. I don't have to talk to this guy, it's okay. But then this horror came over me where I realized, oh, I just told God no. Like God specifically told me to go do something, to go serve him in some way, and I just said no. And it shocked me, one, that I could even do that. But 
it made me realize like how weak I was, right? Kind of like Gideon, how I stayed in this wine press, but I wasn't willing to go out and serve God, right? And it reminds me of a, a line from a song. Uh, it's from this band called Oh Sleeper. It's a Christian band, but um, if you pull it up on the screen here, the line says, what line divides you from the sinners? Who's sowing without growing believers? You point and you judge, forgetting that their faith is molded by your lead. And so that line from that song is meant to be a call out to Christians who do nothing. When God calls them to do something, they don't do anything. Like the first part saying, like, how do we know the difference between you and a sinner or you and a non-believer, right? If your life is exactly the same, then how are we supposed to know the difference? Or it says, you sow without growing believers. It's, that's, if you don't know what sowing is, that's when you like plant seeds just, you know, before the harvest and all that. And so he's saying, like, these people are pretending to sow seeds, right? They're pretending to share the gospel and pretending to be the church. And when the harvest comes, they're like, oh, where's, where's the crop, right? But they've never actually done what God's asked them to do. They never did what they were supposed to do to even get a crop, right? And then it says, but uh, that you are their lead, right? And so people will not do anything for the kingdom of God, be perfectly satisfied just sitting in a chair or whatever on a Sunday, and then new believers come in, and they're supposed to be looking for a lead. They're supposed to be looking for an example from mature Christians. And all, if all they have is Christians who do nothing, what is their lead? Who are they supposed to follow? Who are they supposed to copy? Right? And so this verse is this big call out where it's pointing out this spiritual laziness that can be within us. We're perfectly satisfied with staying in our wine press, hiding from what God actually has for us. And so I wanted to talk about how do we break the spiritual laziness, right? How do we get out of this? How do we not stay in this? And so we're going to see how Gideon does this in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And so Gideon asked this guy for a sign, right? He's like, okay, if you're really from God, like, let's prove it to me, right? If you're really an angel, you could probably prove this, right? And so the angel tells him to go set up an altar and a sacrifice to the Lord, which brings us to verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight, and Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And so Gideon is like, oh, shoot, I've just been complaining to this angel, right? And now like, I'm realizing this is actually God talking to me. And he's, there's probably a little bit of him that's like, I'm about to get smited by lightning, right? I was just back talking God and all that. But that doesn't happen because obviously the story of Gideon and Judges still goes on. Like, it's not like he dies right here, right? But let's see what God actually tells Gideon to do. So verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him because he was too afraid of his family and the men the town to do it by day, but he did it by night. And so Gideon, or God tells Gideon to tear down this Asherah pole, this, this pagan altar, right? But it, I think it's important to remember that this is not just, you know, the Midianite altar or something like that. 
It's the Israelites. It's the people in his town. It's his own family. It says it's his father's, right? So it's not just like he's going to go do this thing in a random town in a group of people that, he, that already hate him, right? These are people in his community. These are family. These are friends. And he's taking a huge risk, one, relationally, but also for his own life. Because it talks about how they actually threaten to kill him, right? They threaten to, they want to kill him for what he did later. But his father actually steps in and says, no, if Asherah really is God, if he's really all powerful, then he can defend himself, right? And I don't know, I think that's kind of a cool dad move. Like if your son is about to get killed and then you step in, you're like, no, I don't know. It's kind of neat. But it brings me to this, this second point that we need to take a leap of faith, right? If we want to break this spiritual laziness and actually do what God's called us to do, actually leave the wine press and go do what God has for us, right? We need to take a leap of faith. Like, if we look at Gideon here, he's scared to tear down the altar publicly, but he still does it. He does it at night when no one's around, but he's still willing to do it. He's still willing to risk his life for the Lord, right? Even though they wanted to kill him for it. And so, to a certain degree, we have to abandon this sense of comfort if we really want to serve the Lord. If we really want to trust God, we need to be able to give up a comfortable life and be willing to recognize that that's not what God has asked us to be, right? And so, if we look at like the original Christians, like they were had to hide in tombs when they met, or you know they would get killed for their faith or tortured. But that's when Christianity spread the fastest. Arguably, was when your life was at risk for being a Christian because they saw your great faith because you were willing to die for this thing, right? And so, it's not supposed to be easy. You know, it's not supposed to be like you hop on a monorail and go to Disneyland with Jesus, right? It's not supposed to be fun. But it's something that's worthy and something that's good and will give you a better life in Christ than just, you know, hiding in a wine press, hiding from what God has for you, right? And so I kind of learned this parable when I was learning to skateboard. Uh, This is not a brag. I am not good at skateboarding. I know how to ollie, which is literally just the jump. But I had one of my students wanted to teach me how to, like, go down a ramp. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So put the helmet on, knee pads, all the stuff. And we get there, and he's like, okay, so... When you go down a ramp, you have to go a full 90 degrees over the side. If you halfway, you go like 45 degrees or something like that, what happens is the board stays on the back two wheels, slides out from under you, and you just fall down the ramp. And so I was like, okay. So you have to be fully committed when you go over the side. But he also told me, he's like, your body naturally does not want to do that. So the first few times you try, you will fall, is what he said. Like, you won't do it the first time. So in order to learn how to do this, you have to fall down. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Ended up falling about three or four times. Had the most nightmare bruise I've ever had on the side of my hip from hitting the side of the thing. But, and I didn't really learn how to do it, but I kind of learned sort of a valuable lesson that I feel like kind of applies to our own Christian walk. Where if we want to serve God, if we want to follow God, we have to be willing to fall down a little bit. Right? Not like in a sin sense, but we have to be willing to get a little hurt, right? We have to know, okay, I have to trust God. I have to go the full 90 degrees over the side, right? Because I have to know God's going to be there for me. God's going to have my back, right? And so we need to be able to take that leap of faith, go over the side of the cliff, knowing God's got us, right? We need to be able to drop in for Jesus, even though it might hurt ourselves. And we see Gideon grows and has this type of faith, right? Because Gideon's taken his leap of faith. He's destroyed this altar, 
right? He's taken this next step of faith. He's left his wine press, right? He went from being this coward to now he's still a little scared, but God's using him and he's done something for the Lord, right? And so eventually we're going to see Gideon build an army to fight against the Midianites. But before that happens, he does one more thing in Judges 6, 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And so even after Gideon has seen an angel, he's heard the voice of God himself, he still needs proof, right? And God gives it to him. He does this miracle, and then Gideon asks him for the same thing in reverse, and then God does that. But we see Gideon isn't quite there yet, right? He's out of the wine press physically, but he's still kind of in there spiritually, where he's worried that, okay, I'm trusting in God, but this could all fall apart, or maybe I'm just crazy, maybe this isn't actually God, right? And so he still wants that type of proof, that type of proof. And how many of us are still like that? Right? You know, you might have Christian on your Facebook page, or you have a Bible verse in your bio, or something like that, or you've got the fish bumper sticker, you know? But maybe that's as far as you go. You're like, I look like a Christian, but I'm perfectly satisfied with the bumper sticker right here, and then that's gonna be my walk with Christ until I die, right? I'm just gonna have the face. I'm just gonna look like a Christian. But are you actually serving the Lord? You know, a lot of us probably will know God for years, but it's like, do you actually know the voice of God? When God asks you to do something, do you know when it's him? And do you know when you need to serve the Lord, right? And so that brings me to my third point here. Faith is an exercise, right? You know, it's not something that's easy. It's something you have to work towards. It's something you need to give a little bit more trust to God, right? Like we see that with Gideon where he starts out afraid and again, he's in this wine press and has to leave, but that's his first step of faith, right? That's his first step of trusting God and being like, okay, God, it seems like you're asking me to do something, so I'm going to trust you and know that you've got my back, right? And we see this trust grow and grow to the point where he's willing to trust God with pretty much everything, right? Because he's already seen God do miracles. He's already seen God do amazing things and protect him from getting killed, right? And so he ends up building this army to fight the Midianites, but God gives him kind of a curveball here. So we're going to jump to Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. And so God halves Gideon's army, which is already just, it's just a bad idea, right? If they're already a small army going against a much bigger army, it's, it doesn't help the men who are already there because it's like, if that army's bigger than me, I'm going to get destroyed, so why should I fight at all, right? If there's no chance of winning, why should I be a part of this? And so God is essentially asking Gideon to do something ridiculous, right? To tell his men basically that they're going to lose and have to have all trust in God, right? It's not a good idea. But then God continues and even halves his army even more in verse 4 here. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I, this one, if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 
300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. And so now he's down to only 300 people. And no offense to you guys, but that's the same amount as both the services on Sunday. And y'all aren't like that intimidating, you know, as far as like a fighting force. And so we see like now he's down to nobody, right? But God still uses this to the point where he probably didn't even need 300. All they had to do was smash pots on the ground and blow trumpets. And then all the Midianites just freaked out and killed each other, right? It was this quick, easy thing. And it's like they might have only needed 10 people. But in order to get to that point, God is asking Gideon to do something ridiculous, like 300 men versus just 10,000 or, or more soldiers, right? That you, you will lose. There's just no chance, especially in hand-to-hand combat. And so God is asking Gideon to trust him, not just with you know, his life or whatever. He's asking him to trust him to do something ridiculous, to do something that's not smart, that doesn't seem like it makes sense. But God's asking him to do this so that he can see something amazing, so that people would for sure say, this was God, not the Israelites, right? He talks about it earlier, that they can't boast, so that everyone knows it was God that saved them. And so I I love talking about Gideon because we see him go from this coward to being a mighty warrior, from starting in the wine press to trusting God with everything, with even ridiculous things, right? And Again, I didn't want to just talk about this as like a, a call-out or something like that, but I see that a lot in, in our church, especially I work a lot with like the, the teenagers, the students, and all that, and I see a lot of them are just so mature in their faith that they're willing to invite their friends to church that don't know Christ, like risk that awkward relationship. We had one student, I didn't ask him to do this, he took a bunch of like the flyers and started going door-to-door inviting people to LifePoint, and I was like, wow, like no one asked him to do that, he just decided to do it, and that reflects on the parents, right? that there are students who have this maturity in their faith that's not just their parents' faith, but that they want to serve the Lord outside of just their parents or someone at church telling them to do it, right? And I think that's amazing for, you know, just the kind of parents that we have in this church. And I'm not just saying just parents. I'm sure there's other people that do this, but that's where I see it. And so I'm going to finish up here, but I'm going to come back to our our bottom line as I welcome up the worship team. But you got to leave your wine press, right? Gideon starts out, in this wine press, not trusting God, trying to hide from maybe what God is asking him to do and being skeptical of it, right? But then he trusts God. He leaves this comfortable life he has and goes just a little bit further and trusting God and just taking one step at a time, right? And seeing what God can do. And then we see God do amazing things through him because he's willing to trust God. If we look at Matthew 17, verse 20, it says, he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so Jesus is saying, even with just a tiny little bit of faith, right? if you just trust me a little bit, you can see not only just miracles, but you can see people in your life who've never known Christ, friends, family, whoever, come to know Christ if you're just willing to take a step of faith, right? In order to leave your wine press, leave this life of fear, leave this comfort, take a leap of faith, trusting God to do something amazing, and he'll do it, right? And so I hope this message has been encouraging. Uh, I, I don't want it to just be like, oh, wow, I suck. I don't do anything. But I want it to be an idea of just like, getting all he had to do to get there was take that first step, to leave the wine press. He just needed to take one step. 
And I want you guys to be encouraged and thinking about what is that step for you, right? Maybe you've already left the wine press and you're following God. And it's like, what's that next step of trust you need to have with the Lord? Or maybe you're like, man, that is me, right? I'm good with the bumper sticker faith, right? And I'm still in that wine press. What is that first step of faith you need to take, right? What is that next step in trusting in God that you need to take to follow him, right? And so that's all I got for you guys. So I'm going to pray and give it back to the worship team. So. Father God, um, just thank you for this day and just uh, for what you have for us, God. Thank you that you want to have uh, an amazing life with us, Lord, that's not just, I don't know, pointless and meaningless and just living and hiding, Lord, but that you've called us to follow you into an amazing life where not only in this world, but that you've called us to be in, in heaven eternally with you if we're willing to believe in you and give our life to you, Lord. Please help everyone here to just be encouraged this week to follow you and to trust you and to leave their wine press again, Lord. And yeah, in Jesus' name, amen.